Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. All right, well, good morning. <clears throat> if you're new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest. And uh, if you're just joining us very recently, you all right back there, Sano? What happened there? Um, if you're just joining us recently, we're taking just the very beginning early steps in a sermon series that will take us all the way through the summer. And for the first time in 21 years... Going through a series on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon, a full-length sermon, which Jesus preached to his followers on a hillside many, many years ago. And I want you to think about how amazing an idea that is that God would become flesh and he would preach a message revealing the heart of God in his own voice and that that's been recorded for us. And so it's with great trepidation that I'm trying to work through this series, hoping that I honor Jesus in what and how uh, I present what he said. We're calling the series Radical, okay? And uh, the reason for the, the title Radical, typically when you hear the word radical, you think of intense or extreme, but instead of thinking Red Bull when you hear radical, I want you to think radish, okay? That sounds weird, right? But a radish is a big root, and at the heart of the root, the, the word radical is this idea. That's the same reason we call it a radish, is it's about essence, foundation, depth, and roots. To say something is radical means it's not a surface thing, but it's at the heart of it. So when you say, I'm a radical, that doesn't mean I say a few inflammatory comments on Facebook. That means when I'm a political radical, I'm like out on the streets marching. I'm doing stuff. It's deep for me, not just on the surface, it's deep. And that's the thing that we're trying to dig into, is that when Jesus gave the sermon, he wasn't just adding to all the teaching that came before, but he was trying to incite a revolution and really shake the religious institutions of his day to say, I'm going to redefine what it means to know and follow God. And he began this this whole sermon with a list of eight things which have come to be known as the Beatitudes. Eight qualities of the human being who God blesses. And we've defined blessing from God as when he gives his joyful, loving approval. When God says, I bless you, what he means is when I look at you, love just pours out of me. I'm filled with joy and I approve of you and who you are and what you're doing. And the truth is, not everybody who goes to church every Sunday longs for that blessing. But if we truly hunger for God, that blessing will become something we yearn for, we pursue with all our hearts. That it will mean more to us than worldly success or the praises of other people. This morning, we're going to look at the second set of Beatitudes. We looked at the first three last week. And we, we looked at poor in spirit, which is a recognition of our spiritual poverty. We looked at those who mourn as people who are just brokenhearted over the sin that's all around them in the world and the sin that's in their own hearts. 
And we looked at the meek, not pushovers, not milk toast, panty waist people, but people who have made a choice to edify others rather than to justify themselves. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and look at the 4th, 5th, and 6th of the Beatitudes. And here's what Jesus said. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to walk us through these three Beatitudes. The first one says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when God speaks of righteousness, that word, whenever it occurs in the New Testament, there are really four kinds of righteousness we need to pay attention to. And I know that some of your, your brains are wired in such a way that the minute a speaker says a list, you start to tune out. <laughs> list, one, two, three, four. Don't zone out. I know the words are going to be a little bit big, but I want you to hang in with me and listen to what God means when he says righteousness. The first kind of righteousness is imputed righteousness. Let me paint it this way, okay? Every one of us at some point in our lives have betrayed or hurt someone we care about. Would you agree with that statement? Right? Is there anyone here who has never done anyone wrong? Somebody you actually care about. And when we do that, it's not because we don't love them. It's because for a moment, we loved ourselves or we loved something else more. And the truth is, I have actually hurt people I do love. And when I've done it, I can sense it immediately, can't you? A relational barrier goes up, a break between you. You say something, you do something, and the minute you do it, you know that's it then. There's this wall between us, a gap, and I can't just ignore it. I can't get over it. I've done something to you, and now the power is in your hands. I can't just move on unless you release me and you receive me back. For all the flowers I buy, all the groveling I do, short of time travel, there's nothing I can do to make it right. What I've done stands as a permanent record. I did it. I said it. It's right there. I can't erase it. I can't mitigate it. And yet I find the need to be reconciled to the person I wronged. It's pounding in my heart like I want to to be okay with you again, but I don't know how to get there. And that's the power of imputed righteousness is the person who holds the cards, who says, you have betrayed me. It's my prerogative to release you and to receive you back. And God does that for us. We had nothing to offer in trade for his approval, his acceptance. But when we stand before God and acknowledge what we've done, he says to us, I declare you acceptable to me because of what Jesus did. It's not something you build up to. It's a decision that God makes to change the way he thinks about you and me. That's what we call justification. If you're a stuffy theologian, of course, you've just described justification. And that's right. If you are a follower of Jesus, at the very root of your journey towards God was this hunger. I know that I've done things that put a barrier between me and God. I yearn to cross that gap, and only he can do that for me. 
There's a second kind of righteousness. That's personal righteousness, what theologians call sanctification. This is the righteousness that we participate in, that we work at. You know, sin wouldn't be tempting if there was no pleasure in it. Would you agree? If chocolate cake tasted like vinegar and urinal cakes, who would eat it? Right? Who would eat it? Sin is tempting because it's sweet for a moment. In the the words of that that great philosopher, Bono, sweet the taste, right? Sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth. It's sweet for a moment, but it goes bitter real fast. And we know that if we are followers of Jesus, sin doesn't lose its sweetness completely, but we can't dwell in that land, pitch tents, dig roots, We can sit for a season in that place, but after a while, if you are a follower of Jesus, something in you begins to just rail against the dirt and the darkness that wants to encroach. You see what you're doing, and you're not okay with it anymore. It doesn't feel good to you anymore. It's sort of like day eight of a mission trip where you really badly need a shower And you need to stop seeing bugs and just wash up and be comfortable again. It's that feeling. Something in us groans and says, I am so tired of me. I am so tired of what I do. I'm so tired of my powerlessness and my weakness to be different. And I want so much to become more righteous, more like Jesus. There's something in the heart of a true Christian that hungers for this, that says, I'm so sick of what the world is like, what it makes me into. I want to be different. I want to be more like Jesus, and I'm willing to do my part to work at that and grow in it day by day. I don't want this anymore. That's personal righteousness. And what Jesus says is, those who follow me yearn for that. They won't camp in that place far away from God. And then there's social righteousness. It's what's often referred to as justice. If we follow Jesus and we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are not content to go to that place alone. It's sort of like getting out of the shower, being fresh and clean, and then packing into an elevator full of dirty, smelly people. And you realize just being clean by yourself is not deeply satisfying because you still live in a world so full of the dark. And there's this desire in the heart of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness not to go through the the journey by themselves, but to say, I live in a world filled with things that break our hearts, that are ruining people's lives, and I'm not content to just keep being in that world changing a little bit day by day on my own. What I long for is to see society reshaped by the hand of God. And I want to be a part of that reshaping. Haven't you ever looked around at the world and just despaired and thought, why is it like this? Why why does stuff like this happen? And when that hunger rises up in you and says, I'm not okay with that anymore, I want to do what I can Because I want to see God reshape the world. And then there's final righteousness. We can be militant and deeply committed in our quest for justice and personal righteousness. But at the end of the day, if you're a realist, you know that for all the impact we make, we will never make this world truly the way it's supposed to be. 
You take care of one injustice and another one rises up. It's like a game of whack-a-mole that just never ends. You're like, seriously, bam, it's trafficking. Now there's clean water issues. And you do that and somebody's cheating on their wife and you do that. And it's just like everywhere you look, people are breaking down. And for all the hard work we put into fighting for God, the darkness dwells in us and all around us. And even though you fight like a trooper, the truth is this side of heaven and eternity, we will never be truly at home and at peace here. We will never make this place heaven on earth. We will fight for Jesus. We will raise his banner, but it will never be a place that we are meant to be truly at peace and at home forever. And so in the heart of all those who know and truly follow Jesus, there is this irrepressible yearning for that final day when he returns and the work we've labored at all our lives in one sweep, he finishes and he makes the world all over again and he makes it right. And in that single gesture, he makes us right. Now, the problem with this beatitude, and that's a big statement of problem with this beatitude, but the problem with it, I think, is it's built on a metaphor that uses hunger and thirst. And we Americans are among the most well-fed and well-watered people that have ever lived on the earth. I can't think of the last time somebody in America who didn't get lost in the wilderness died of thirst. Can you? I actually Googled it. <laughs> Unless somebody's completely, woohoo, you know, like water's everywhere. So how do you build a metaphor in the spiritual realm based on a sensation none of us feel for more than a couple hours at a time? Let me tell you a story. Do you like stories? So a few years ago, I went to speak at a retreat in a place I'd never been to, um, into a group I'd never ministered to before. I didn't know anything about these people. I don't know how they heard about me, but they invited me. I prayed. God said, go. So I went. It was one of those weird days where I was so busy before I left trying to get things ready that I just didn't eat anything all day. I hopped an evening flight. I got there at night. And my host, the guy I'd been communicating with, met me at the airport and we drove. We had a wonderful conversation. He was firing away questions and it seemed like he was waiting for me to land so he could talk to me. And so we talked. But the whole time I'm looking, I'm like, I'm really hungry, man. It's really hard to talk to you right now because your head's starting to look like a cheeseburger. I just, I'm so hungry. And not once did he invite me to eat anything. He didn't ask, hey, are, are you hungry? He just kept talking. And I'm a good pastor, so I just kept talking back. And I figured, all right, so maybe there's food. Like, you know, sometimes there's like, instant noodles waiting late night. So I get them thinking, surely he's waiting to get to the retreat center. It was a, a rural camp is out in the country. We get there and it's all dark and everyone's already in their rooms. And he goes, here's your room. Here's your key. Uh, service starts at eight in the morning tomorrow. And so we'll see you. Good night. I'm like, sucker, I, I'm hungry. <laughs> so I'm looking around. Then I think, oh, oh, I see. Usually when you're a speaker, they prepare a hospitality basket filled with goodies. I mean, I've gotten baskets so big, half my suitcase coming home was filled with stuff I didn't eat. So I'm like, oh, all right, I got you, bro. And I went in my room, and there's nothing. Remember, this is a college campus, but it's in the middle of nowhere. Everything's dark. That's when I realized we Americans don't carry food with us. I mean, like, I'm looking at my bag, and I'm seeing all this technology and writing instruments, nothing to eat. I would have settled for a cracker package from Denny's, but nothing. 
I even for a second thought, toothpaste, you know, kind of like. I had, it's been a while since I've been that hungry. And what made it worse was not just the hunger, but the idea that there is nothing available. This is not hunger that I'm intending to have. It's hunger I have no choice about. I couldn't take it anymore. I knew I should have slept early, reviewed my sermons, got ready for the next day. But I wasn't having I was so hungry. And if you know me, that's a rare thing that I'm gripped by hunger. So I put on my jacket, I go out, and I just start walking blindly through the countryside. I'm going to find a gas station. People, even out here in the sticks, have to fill up their cars with gas. So I'm looking, and finally, I find a gas station. Lights like the angels of heaven beckoning me. And there's a little store attached, and I feasted on Gatorade and Pringles. Okay? It was like manna from heaven and communion wine. I just, it was so good. And I was so glad to fill my belly with it. And then I got lost walking back. <laughs> it took me a while to get back. But, you know, here's the thing. Why I'm telling you the story is I could have very easily sat in my room and just grown more and more ticked off at this young kid who picked me up. And all I could think about was what he could get out of me. Oh, I'm going to get squeeze the speaker for all the wisdom and... This fool never once asked me if I was hungry, if I was thirsty, and I could have sat in my room and just thought, what is wrong with the world? That punk. And I know that was a temptation for me, was to just stew in it, to spiral into a dark place of anger and frustration and judgment. But here's the thing about real hunger. It doesn't lead us to sit and whine. It leads us to walk out and dine. You know what I'm saying? Do you like that? I, I rhymed it. See, real hunger doesn't make you just sit there and go, what is wrong with everybody? What's wrong with the world? That's, that's not real hunger. That's just a little pang, a little gurgle. Real hunger demands satisfaction. Uh, you're desperate for it. Wherever you can find it, you will go venturing out because if you don't eat, you feel like you're going to die. That's how God wants us to feel about righteousness. He doesn't just want us to say, oh, I'd be nice with the world. We're different if I could change. Well, whatever. He doesn't want us to be casual about it. He says, if you really do care about that, if you're not just a whiner who loves to talk about how messed up the world is, how messed up everyone else is, if you're not just a whiner, but you really are grieved by everything, the way it manifests is not an empty condemnation. It doesn't manifest in just whining and complaining. It drives you out to search for it no matter what. That's where you know you're gripped by the hunger that comes from God for righteousness. Is that what you hunger for most in your heart? That this break between you and God would be fixed? That you would stop being the person you are and start becoming more like him? That you would see the world around us reshaped by God's hand? You dream and dream of one day when all this mess is swept away and Jesus comes back and makes it right. Is that what you yearn for and hunger for? Because he says that's how he intends for us to feel, and he wants us to feel that. And if we ask for it, he will give us that heart, and he will bless us. Let me give you a second beatitude here. Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are the merciful. Because the people who are merciful... Part of that blessing is they themselves will ask for and receive real mercy. At the heart of mercy, the way God defines it, 
is this idea of a generosity of spirit that extends to other people who haven't earned what we want to give them. See, anybody, irreligious people, selfish people, anyone can have enough sense to pay you back for what you've earned. That's just normal life. That's mammalian behavior. But mercy is when we have a generous heart to those who haven't earned it, who don't deserve what they're asking for or what they need. And it's godly because that's precisely the way that we have to approach God. When I approach God, I don't approach pushing in front of me all my accomplishments and the good things I've done. Because he says to me, I know those are your treasures, but they are to me like filthy rags. What he says is, when you come to me, I give you things you couldn't even ask for, that you cannot earn, and I give them to you out of a generous heart, because that is what mercy really looks like. The Greek word for mercy has standing behind it a beautiful, rich Hebrew word, chesed. And the word chesed means loving kindness, or it means steadfast love. It's There isn't a parallel in the English language that really does justice to the Hebrew word chesed. It's like not a surge of emotion, but the steady, deep, intentional choice to love, especially those who it's really hard to love. Professor D.A. Carson, who teaches up at Trinity, he says it this way. Grace is a loving response when love is undeserved, but mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of others. Most of the time, grace and mercy are synonymous, but when they need to be distinguished, here's how he distinguishes them. Mercy is a generosity of heart and spirit towards those who are in misery, even though it's not my problem. We've all been there. In fact, I I was telling some people at small group recently about an experiment they did in Princeton Seminary with a bunch of students, and here's the funny part. They were, they were rushing to take a test on the parable of the Good Samaritan. How's that for priming the pump? And they said, as you go, they planted some people in distress, obvious distress, a man who had fallen down, a homeless guy shaking a cup, begging for some money, and these theological students rushing to take a test on the parable of the Good Samaritan walked right past all those people, And they saw them clearly, and they ignored them because they needed to go take a test. We've all been there. You see someone in need, and you see them in your periphery, and you think, oh, man, I wish, but you know what? I've got other things I've got to get done. That's really not my problem right now. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. I've done it. I know you have. I've driven past people on the side of the road, and I'm thinking, I should stop and help them. But what if they're one of those weird people I heard about in the news that put a car carrier, a baby carrier out there to lure me in, they're going to kill me. And so I just drive on, you think, oh, Lord, just help them, whatever. You just keep driving. See, grace is a response to the undeserving, but mercy is a response of love to the miserable. And the miserable surround us. They're everywhere. The truth is, it's not just economic misery, But where we live, the most common form of misery we will encounter is emotional and relational misery, psychological misery. People who are surrounded by others 
but of feeling incredibly alone. It's a hard place to live your life. I think true mercy is most on display in the way that we respond to people we're tempted to judge. Did you hear that? See, if I see an old woman, her walker is kind of cast to the side, she's laying there on the bo- in the middle of a busy road, clearly she's just old and frail and she's fallen. I'm going to help her. But if I see a 20 20- a 20-year-old man standing outside the 7-Eleven in the summer, he's got just huge pecs, an eight-pack. He looks strapping and young, and he's asking me if I can give him $5, and I think, go get a job, man. You look stronger than me. You look healthier than me. What are you doing standing around? What choices did you make to put yourself here? And it is tempting and, in fact, easy without knowing anything about a person, to stand in judgment of their plight, presuming that their wounds are self-inflicted. Professor Daniel Doriani, who teaches at Covenant Seminary, he says this, The mercy Jesus is talking about is this, when we see a troubled friend, we empathize. We ask, how can I help? Not, how do you ever get into this ridiculous situation? I think for some of us who are parents, repentance and reform begin just in the way we talk to our kids. I mean, let's face it, our kids aren't always that bright. They're smarter than we were at that age, but still, they're they're not always that bright. And some of the trouble they find themselves in, we're so tempted to go, what did you expect? I told you this and you did that. (laughs) Whatever. You deserve this. This is your fault. And the truth is, all heaven bears witness, it is true. That fool is in trouble because he made terrible choices. It's the result of poor character and bad choice making, and yet the misery still stands. It's there. And I think the mercy Jesus describes, the mercy God blesses, is most on display in the way that we respond to people worthy of judgment. When you see somebody who's in a bad situation that they contributed to, where does your heart go? Where does it go? You know, having spent an entire lifetime hanging out with his older brother Jesus, watching the way Jesus interacted with some very difficult people, the Apostle James paid attention And later, when he wrote a letter to the church, he wrote these powerful words. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Listen to this. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's so easy to judge those whose views we deem reprehensible, whose choices we think were unwise, whose character we think pathetically low. But James hung out all his life with his older brother Jesus, and he watched the way Jesus talked to 
and interacted with people who are wallowing in their own mess. I agree that we can't save them all. We can't help everybody. But we should want to. It should bother us. When we see the scope of need and misery in our world, it should bother the people of Jesus that we see the scale of the misery and the limitations of our resources and we grieve. It shouldn't be, well, you can't save them all. Stop trying. It's, we can't save them all, but we will save as many as we can. I can't fix every problem in the world, but I can fix something. And from the depths of my heart, if there is mercy, I cannot watch the news and be a non-participant. I can't have a friend in misery and say, please feel better. But I don't want to get involved because you'll become like gum stuck on my shoe. I'll never get rid of you. Please just fix yourself. I'm begging you. Feel better, would you? I'll pray for you. Isn't I'll pray for you sometimes code for please let me go? Please let me disengage right now. I'm not trying to be a cynic. I'm just saying Jesus is describing the heart that God surges forward and blesses. And he says, this is the heart I want to see in my people. Is that you respond to those who are worthy of judgment with the heart that is in Jesus Christ. You make their misery your own if even just for a moment. Here's the third one. Blessed are the pure in heart. And the promise is, the pure in heart will see God. I would wager that the most common use of this Bible verse, this precious Bible verse, is given to men especially who struggle with porn addiction and lust. And a mentor says, memorize this verse, it'll help you. And so the hope is you memorize this and your desire to see God outweighs the impurity that wants to encroach in your heart. Now, I'm not making fun of that in the sense that there's a validity to that. But we have to be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus meant by these powerful words. He wasn't saying if you will just clean up your heart, then you can approach God and see him. The reason you can't see God is your heart is so filthy. That's not really the force of what Jesus is saying in this verse. There is a truth to the fact that dirty hands and an unclean heart stand as a barrier between us and God. But here's what Jesus is really saying. There are two aspects of purity of heart in Scripture. One is moral cleanness, a purity inside the heart. But the other sense in which, the, in which God speaks about purity of heart is integrity or single-mindedness, an undivided heart. In the same way that we say this is pure gold, that means it's not gold plus aluminum, gold plus whatever. It's just all gold. It's undivided. It is all one thing. And that's the sense in which I believe Jesus is giving us this beatitude. That those whose hearts are single-mindedly focused on God will see him. Let me give you a visual aid to help you. I want all of you just to pause for a second. If you're taking notes, finish your right and look up here. Do this with me. I want everyone to do this with me, okay? Put out your hands like this and do this until you can barely make out movement in your periphery. Okay, you got it? 
Now, when you're staring straight at, you can be vaguely aware that there's a right hand and a left hand moving, but can you see what either hand is actually doing? No, you can't. Now, you can stop. That, you guys look ridiculous. But here's the point. If you attempt to look at two things which are not next to each other, which are far apart, if you attempt to look at both of them, you'll see neither of them. If you want to actually see either hand, you've got to make a choice. I'm going to stop pretending I can look at both, and I've got to pick one hand or the other. I'm going to look at one thing, and then I'll see it. Do you understand that visual aid? For some of us, the reason we can't see God is not that he's hiding from us. Oh, here he comes. Shh, angels, be quiet. It's not like trick or treat. We're pretending we're not home. God doesn't want to hide from us. He wants to be seen. But he says, I stand right here. But if you really aren't looking for me, you won't see me. We only see what we look at. And we see most clearly what we most intently look at. So the question about seeing God is not simply, is, is your heart clean enough? Because if that's what it took, we would never approach God at all. What he's saying is, if your heart is divided, you'll only see in part everything you think you can see. But if you want to see God, you must make a choice with an undivided, single-minded focus to pursue and look for God first and God only. And as you do that, the amazing, marvelous result will be your heart will become more devoted and it will begin to love what God loves. It will begin to grieve for what God grieves over. That righteousness we seek at a personal level comes as we behold and look intently into the face of God and realize he's what I want most to behold. When I look intently at the world, I just feel like crying. I'm paralyzed by despair and frustration. But when I look at God, hope rises in my heart. I actually feel like I can make it to the age of 80 without going postal. I actually have hope that no matter who's in charge, righteousness can prevail. Justice can have its day. Suffering can end for many people. The late Professor Glenn Stassen, whose book on the Sermon on the Mount has been so shaping of my heart, he said it like this. Integrity, which means the quality of being whole or undivided, is a state in which we are freed from our former masters, money, race prejudice, militarism, egotism, or any other jealous, demonic gods who demand our respect and obedience and make us their slaves. Really what he's saying is integrity is the decision not to look at both things at the same time, but pick one and go all in. That's why Jesus said, for they shall see God. They shall see God because their lives are in focus. If you know me, you know that for me and Jeannie, our favorite sport, hands down, is football. And one of the greatest delights in our life was watching our son Elijah play football. I still watch old video clips secretly. He doesn't know, but I watch them, and my heart just yearns. And he played one year, freshman year, of high school football for me, not for himself. But he made a really courageous choice this year not to play football because he said, if I get hurt in football season... I won't be able to play basketball, which is the following season. 
I'm going to stop pretending I'm going to be a two-sport athlete. I'm going to go all in with one. And that decision has made him a better basketball player. And I think that spirit of decision, focus, commitment is the heart that Jesus is looking for. You cannot have God and and still have the full experience of God. To, to truly see God, he's what you've got to look intently for and intently at. The heart that looks for God with this kind of focus doesn't fold its arms and say, well, if God mugs me during this sermon, I'm sure he'll get my attention. It's, I'm desperate to find you. If even this hairless ape talking up there can speak for you, God, do it. Because I'm begging, I'm starving, I need to see you. I'm looking for you. Do you see that, that kind of heart? And it's that heart that receives the blessing of seeing God. Where do you find your heart this morning? Now remember, the the essence of the Beatitudes is not mimic these behaviors and then you'll get a blessing from God. But he's saying, just check your heart. These are just a mirror held up to us to know, do I have the kind of heart that causes God's spirit to surge towards me in loving, joyful approval? Do I have that kind of heart? And if I find that that doesn't describe at all how my heart feels, then the remedy is not to mimic what I've just talked about, but to say, God, my heart is not right. My attitude is somewhere off, and I want to become more like this person Jesus said, you bless. Make me like that. Give me that kind of heart. What do you find yourself really hungering the most for today? Be honest. Just think about it in your heart. What hunger drives your life? What leads to, what forces your hand into the biggest decisions that define your life? What's the hunger that is obvious to everyone behind that decision? Is it a desperate desire to see God's righteousness prevail in your life and in the world around you? How merciful is your heart, especially towards those whose pain is their own making? who are worthy of judgment, but nonetheless stand in misery right in front of you. And how pure is your heart? Yes, in moral cleanness, but even more importantly in this context, how undivided, how single-minded is your intent to look for God in this world, to look at Him and stop trying to live under the illusion you could look at both God and the world and see them clearly. Make a choice in your heart to say, God, I want eyes first and only for you. And when I see you clearly, everything else will come into focus. I want to invite you to bow with me. Let's enter just a short time of prayer. I don't know which of those, if any, really resonates with where your heart is right now, but I want to just give you one minute to let the Holy Spirit talk directly to you. Which of these touches where your heart is at right now or you sense God is saying, that's what I want you to ask me for, for that kind of heart? Pause a minute and let the Lord talk to you and then we'll sing one more song and we'll close our service together. Let's just be in prayer, listening for the voice of God.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.